I'd like to reflect with you today um, about or on the three characteristics. Um, So the Buddha said that anything that we can uh, experience in our awareness is is characterized by impermanence, uh, anicca is the um, Pali word, anicca, uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and the word Pali word is dukkha, and um, and non-self, uh, and the Pali word is anatta. We've been looking into uh, impermanence. Um, looking into the impermanence of sensations, of thoughts, of, of feelings, um, mental states, moods. Just, uh, and I think it's, um, it's a deepening exploration uh, that we will continue to do. Um, and we can bring uh, the exploration of impermanence into our moment-by-moment practice. Just um, reflecting on the the kind of um, sense of uh, ourselves, of our of our environment, um, of our intentions, um, just how we arrived here just a few days ago, and. And um, and then how we have been experiencing um, inner experiences, sensory experiences that have changed us, and um, and and we're now even just a few days later, we're different people than we were when we arrived. Uh, maybe in subtle ways, maybe in more deeply felt ways. So anicca is something that um, we explore and, uh, and deeply know in our bones um, through practice. And so I'm not going to talk about it at great length now. Um, dukkha, uh, unsatisfactoriness, is... These these characteristics are all quite uh, linked together, and um, and dukkha uh, arises from our attempt to hold on to what pleases us, uh, to what we think will make us feel good or does make us feel good in the moment, um, and and to avoid or push away or distract ourselves from uh, that which is unpleasant or annoying or irritating or painful. Um, and, and because, you know, we can see quite logically and we know from our experience that uh, that holding on to something that is pleasant, thinking that it will continue to please us and make us happy, 
um, is, is a losing game. Uh, it's, um, we change the, whatever it is we're holding on to, whether it's a person or a, a, um, an object or a situation, um, it all changes. Uh, and, and so when we look to something or some experience or some relationship as the way that we will find some kind of contentment, well-being, peace, uh, it's, you know, we're, we're bound to end up frustrated and dissatisfied. Um, so, you know, a little, a little example of that, um, we touched on just very briefly at the 1130, uh, gathering, you know, that, that the sound of the, the mower, you know, it might have been felt uh, as intrusive or unpleasant. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, here we are in this, um, you know, in this beautiful space and, uh, and a sound intrudes on our, uh, kind of on our samadhi, <laughs> on our, on our tranquility. Uh, and the mind might, re- might react to that. Um, I mean, maybe your mind did, maybe it didn't, uh, but it's something to work with. Um, so, so we work with, um, we work with all kinds of experiences and, and some people come, come to meditation and they think that meditation is, is going to, uh, help them feel good. And, um, and it's not that simple because meditation uh, is not is not necessarily pleasant or uh, or blissful. There are there are approaches to meditation that are aiming for that for a kind of blissful experience. But insight meditation is not about that. It's being with what is. And um, and dukkha is about you know the the cause of dukkha is not wanting to be with what is. Uh, wanting to push away or avoid or hold on to um, some kind of experience. So, um, so we are exploring dukkha. Um, uh, it's unavoidable. <laughs> uh, so, are we at the effect of? Uh, experiences, sensations that are unpleasant? In other words, do we react to them? Um, or do we cling to pleasant ones? Uh, or do we um, just recognize how the mind is clinging and and recognize that that is the source of the dukkha. So, so I'm I'm kind of just looking at these first two more 
briefly, and they are, there's a lot to explore. There are many, many ways that we experience dukkha and, um, and it's important to understand them because each one of us uh, experiences dukkha coming out of the causes and conditions of our lives. And, and so uh, understanding how this system, this psychophysical organism creates dukkha and how it can stop creating dukkha is the investigation of, uh, of a lifetime of practice. Um, I'd like to talk more at more length about the third characteristic, anatta, or non-self. I think I think that's um, a little bit harder to take in, um, and um, and and there might also be the question of, you know, why. You know what's what's the use of uh, looking into the unreality of constructing a self? Uh, you know, like what good does it do me? Um, how does it help? <clears throat> and and the reason why the Buddha emphasized this, and 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 really the teaching on non-self. Uh, which is, you know, uh, it's something that I, again, it's a lifetime of practice to um, to practice, to to dive into in our experience and understand and realize. Um, the the teaching on on anatta was really what the unique piece in the Buddhist teaching because there were other teachers at the time who were teaching about um, impermanence uh, and and suffering and his and the insight the unique insight of the Buddha was into uh, that this whole self is is a something that's constructed um, the sense of self, this idea of self, this, and that we cling to it, and that's and that's what causes our uh, the suffering that we're clinging to this idea of self, and that this self should be experiencing pleasure and avoiding pain and so on. Um, So the way that, uh, one of the ways that the Buddha talked about self uh, is pointing at ways that we cling. And um, those of you who have been listening to Dharma talks or reading, exploring the Dharma know that there are a lot of different lists of things, numbered lists, and this, these are uh, ways that... Uh, help us to remember uh, the teachings. It um, comes from it being an oral tradition and being passed on so that it was kind of uh, composed in terms of, you know, four of this and, you know, and eight of that and five of this and so on. So these, these are the five khandas or the, in Sanskrit, the five skandhas and, um, 
and it literally translates as five heaps. Um, or, but usually it's called in English five aggregates. So, but, but what we are are, you know, five heaps of stuff, uh, that, um, that we can recognize, uh, that we cling to. And, and, and the, the benefit of naming them and looking at each of them is, uh, is so that ha- as we live in our lives, we can recognize that the, the clinging to these different aggregates are um, creating, you know, we're, we're building a sense of a self which then creates an other, which creates a dualism and uh, perpetuates suffering. Um, so the f- so these five are form, and form refers to the body. Uh, feelings, and I'll. So I, this is going to be kind of a, a quick overview of of all of these things, these uh, these these heaps. <laughs> uh, then perceptions, and uh, and then mental formations, but but usually volition or intention is the one that's kind of really focused on when the aggregates are taught, and consciousness. So, so the body, um, the Buddha has many uh, teachings and in, in the, the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness, he spends a lot of time just deconstructing. And really all of this is deconstructing our ideas, our beliefs, um, that this is me or mine, that this can be uh, identified with as, as a self, as something that I can possess or I can call my own. Uh, and, um, and so one of the ways that the Buddha asks us to contemplate the body is to recognize that it is composed of various parts. Now, in the time of the Buddha, they didn't understand the body as well as we do. And, uh, and you know, he breaks down into the various organs. There's skin, there's, uh, there's teeth, there's eyes, um, eyeballs, you know, the fluids of the eyes, the blood, the phlegm, the... Uh, the internal digestive organs, stomach, the intestines, and so on, and he lists them. Um, in, interestingly enough, the brain is missing from that. So, uh, um, but um, the idea is that, and he, he said, it's it's like you know a car. Um, you know, you you take it apart. It's a composite of of. Uh, you know, a wheels, steering wheels, or he said a cart, not a car, but, uh, 
so a, a wheel, uh, you know, an axle, um, the the box of the cart, and so on. Uh, and and so, um, you know, we we are a system of systems where, and we are an open system, you know, continually needing to be rehydrated and nourished and the cells rebuilding and um uh and it's a system that's gradually breaking down um and wearing out and we all are from the moment we're born um of course you know the first early years until adulthood where you know the body is growing and building itself but still it's it's parts are wearing out and being replaced and uh and then and then as we get older and older the um the replacement doesn't work as well uh they run out of oh we don't have that part anymore that was discontinued <laughs> uh, yeah so so uh, the body is uh, you know, we, I, I think we can clearly understand, uh, that the body is, um, something that has a contingent existence. It doesn't exist, uh, independently or permanently. And, uh, and one of the contemplations is to go and, um, and sit in the charnel grounds. Um, this was where, uh, people who couldn't afford to be cremated, uh, their bodies were placed and, and they decomposed and, and the vultures came and ate them. And, um, and this is, this is, uh, still done in, in, uh, say Quebec, <laughs> Tibet, uh, <laughs> not Quebec, uh, a, uh, the sky burials, sky burials, um, where, yeah, there's somebody who cracks open the, the bones and and uh, prepares the body for the birds to feed on it, and it's given back to the web of life. Um, so, um, so we, but we do cling to our bodies, and we cling to our bodies as me and mine in so many ways. Um, through the senses, uh, through the um, the enjoyment of the senses, or the displeasure in the senses, it's whether we like it or we don't like it. It's a form of clinging. Uh, we identify with our bodies, and and we we have a sense of self about our bodies, and. Uh, And and one of the ways that we may, may identify with our bodies might be conditioned by how society reflects us back to ourselves. So, you know, so there's so much judgment about, you know, are you beautiful uh, or handsome according to the, the uh, standards of society, you know, um, Racialized bodies have a, a certain experience of 
you know, and we're all racialized, no matter what the color of our skin, but it, the dominant uh, color of skin, the white-bodied person, um, at least dominant for the moment, um, maybe not in a generation or two, uh, in this particular place, not everywhere, of course. Um, so the, you know, the... The dominant uh, doesn't the dominant uh, color of skin person doesn't have a sense of being uh, racialized, um, but we are we are by default if, once we racialize anybody. You know, race is a construct, and it has and it has a lot of impact on how we view our bodies and experience our bodies and experience ourselves in the larger society. And so we, it, all of this, uh, um, embeds or, or, uh, I mean, the word is escaping me yet. It makes stronger a sense of identity with the body, you know, in, in a, in a positive or a negative way, um, depending on your experience, depending on uh, what's reflected back to you. You know, are you beautiful? Are you, are you, uh, whatever, however you present yourself, are you a beautiful being, um, you know, in, in whatever unique way that you are manifesting? Can we find the beauty? Can we see the beauty in that, um, the inner beauty? <clears throat> which comes through in so many ways. So there's a lot of ways that we are conditioned to to uh, identify with the body. And, um, and we create a sense of self. Uh, and, and these are all fraught with um, dukkha. Uh, so the second aggregate, the second heap is feelings. And, and I've briefly talked about feelings. Um, so with every sensation that arises, um, we experience it as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, which we um, make a shortcut for that as neutral. Uh, so, so a sound, so the, the sound of the mower, um, you know, did it arise as unpleasant as, as we were sitting I, earlier today? And and what was the, did the mind react to that? And, and, and did a story come up? But did a, you know, why are they mowing here while we're meditating? Uh, I actually had, many years ago, I had an experience of um, when I was on a long retreat and I was sitting in my room and, and meditating and the mower started up right outside my window. And all of that pro- proliferation happened, you know. I said, why are they mowing? And you know, I, I, had, I was in such a beautiful samadhi, and 
uh, you know, like my mind was calm and tranquil. And 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 then, of course, you know, uh, then I, I looked at that reactivity, and it was uh, it was such a liberating experience to to actually see how the mind was creating that suffering, where none was needed. It was just sound, you know. There was nothing happening. It was just sound, and um, and so uh, so I actually always, you know, the sound of a mower. Uh, has a, a, a tinge of pleasant, even on another level. It's it's unpleasant. There's a there's a kind of sweet memory there. But you see how our feeling tone can arise. It's and it's impermanent, and yet we chase pleasant feelings. You know, we, uh, you know, maybe. Looking at the menu uh, as we go into the dining hall, you know, oh, am I going to like that? Or, you know, is that, is there enough protein? Or, you know, am I going to feel good when I eat that? Uh, All of these um, possible proliferations or maybe other things. Is the sun shining? Uh, Oh, I'm glad it's a sunny day again. It's, It's so beautiful here. Um, wanting the pleasant feelings. And then, you know, the clouds come, the rain falls, oh, it's raining. So, so learning to be with uh, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, with a balanced and open and non-reactive mind is a big part of uh, practice. So we identify with you know, enjoying nice, pleasant feelings and avoiding unpleasant ones, our thoughts, our memories. Some memories get pushed away. I was reading something by Ajahn Suchito, who um, he was reflecting that, you know, in... um, he, he learned from a, a Thai forest master, um, and, and he was reflecting that, you know, in, in early days of, of practice, of Buddhist practice in Thailand, uh, the life was just so hard. Um, there were so few comforts. Many, most people were very, very poor. And so, and so practicing with with hardship was a lot of practice to to be with difficult experiences and of course um many people in the world have difficult lives not enough to eat um not a, not warm enough clothing or it's too hot i mean too hot is something that we're really learning about. And, um, and so it's alarming, you know, because it's, it's dangerous to life. Uh, human life doesn't thrive in, in temperatures of 40, 43 Celsius. 
So, so I, I think that um, it's quite possible that we may be experiencing more hardship than we're used to um, as the, the climate crisis unfolds. So, so feelings, um, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. This is, this, these are, uh, this is another one of the aggregates, the ways that we create a sense of self. You know, we, we see ourselves perhaps um, as, uh, as mostly comfortable, um, experiencing comfort in our lives. And, um, and not all people do. And, and, you know, can we be more at ease with discomfort? Can we open to being with unpleasant feelings? And that's, you know, just meditating. Um, that's part of what we learn in meditation is that, yeah, the body is not always comfortable. And so we learn not to shift every, you know, three or four minutes to try to get a more comfortable posture, um, but just to ask ourselves, well, is this, can I, can I be with this level of discomfort? Do I feel like I'm injuring myself if I don't move? You know, is it stretching my knee or my hip so severely that I have to take care of my body and move? Or is it a, just a certain level of discomfort? And can I, can I relax around it? Can I be with it? Can I have some openness with it to, uh, to be with a certain level of unpleasant, to allow that into our lives? Because I think we are all old enough to realize that life dishes up a lot of unpleasant experiences, um, on physical and emotional, their sickness, illness in the body, loss, disappointment, things not, not working out the way we expect. So, form and feelings um, and perception is the third. Perception is a very important way that we construct a sense of self. We really shape the world, um, or the world is shaped. I, I, I think that that's a more accurate way to say it. The world is shaped through the perceptions that we have, that were that were that were conditioned that that have conditioned us from the very moment of our birth. Um, so infants don't distinguish objects. Um, they don't have names. For, they don't recognize that, um, you know, something that's moving is necessarily not the whole environment. So, so babies are, have an undifferentiated kind of um, awareness uh, or undifferentiated way, way of sensing the world. And 
And so through language, we build perception uh, and, and that perceptions are built and deconstructed all of our lives. And we, we make sense of the world through perception. And, and of course, we wouldn't ever want to not know that a door was a door and that a window wasn't a door and that we don't go out the window instead of a door. So these are important things to, to understand. But our perceptions um, give us a sense of the solidity, a solid world, uh, where it isn't really um, nearly as solid as we, as we believe. Um, everything is is changing. Everything has a contingent existence. Um, you know, one of the uh, the teachings Thich Nhat Hanh gave is to hold up a piece of paper um, and and and. Sh- talk about how the world is in a piece of paper. I, I, I like to use a, my, the sounding stick. Um, so, you know, we think that this stick is something solid and separate. And, um, and yet in this stick, um, the whole, there's the whole universe. Uh, because uh, the, um, the minerals that were necessary to be in the earth for trees to grow and for humans to evolve come from the the implosion and regeneration of stars first generation stars becoming second generation stars i i think i understand that correctly maybe i'm not saying it correctly but but there's a a a blast that goes through the universe and and um scatters the, the metals, the minerals uh, that have enabled life to evolve on this planet. Um, you know, the trees need water and sun and rain, sun and, and, and earth and, uh, and other creatures to, uh, to make the trees grow and, and thrive and, 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 and different organisms. Uh, the human beings who cut the tree to make this stick uh, also have contingent existence uh, dependent as we are on so many different um, uh, conditions to support our life. And, um, and then we can ask, where was this stick made? You know, was it made in a country where this person who cut and, and uh, shaped this stick, um, earned a fair wage. You know, so social justice is in this stick. Um, globalism is in this stick. Um, craftsmanship and the tradition of cutting the stick in just a, such a way to, uh, to f- effectively sound the bell is, uh, is in that stick. So it could go on and on. So there's so many... Th- so many elements, everything is connected to everything else. And so, so this perception that things are separate and solid and, and have their own 
existence is is a uh, is a misperception. And perceptions also refer to the way that we uh, label and take in um, the world. Um, I was reading again something by Ajahn Suchito, and he said, uh, "He said two people can look at at a building. One is an architect, and the architect will see a certain will see the building in a certain way. The other is a thief, and the thief will see the building in a very different way. So, how we have developed our perceptions, and." influences how we take in the world, how we experience the world. And we've been taught to perceive other people in certain ways, you know, stories about people who dress certain ways or people who talk certain ways or, uh, you know, it's, it's, we've been deeply shaped by these. And, and so, you know, our practice is to, to notice these perceptions, to recognize when the mind is is imposing a story, a narrative, a judgment, a uh, a kind of a a box, putting somebody in a box, and and coming back into the body, and coming into the heart, and coming into a wholeness of perception. A, a a way of being with which is embodied which is grounded in the heart in the in the whole being and recognize that you know perceptions are conditionings of the mind and create a self and other and that and that coming into this embodied awareness um, which allows us to listen and bear witness and take in what is really uh, in front of us and what is really um, around us in a way that is more attuned. Um, so that's that's how we work with perceptions. First of all, to notice it and to... Uh, to be to ha- hold it lightly um, so uh intention all mental formations thoughts memories and so on you know we've talked about how they come and go and how they come from causes and conditions um Intention, planning, planning, you know, a lot of, a lot of us do a lot of planning, right? Uh, So, you know, how long does it, how how long does it take into retreat for the planning mind (laughs) to begin to slow down? Um, And, you know, I think it's a kind of an interesting question to ask ourselves. All of the things that we planned they come out the way we plan. Um, it's uh, 
Uh, all of the things that we've planned in our lives, you know, did it come out just as we planned? <laughs> so not, not that we shouldn't have plans or frameworks or think about, you know, what we're going to do. I certainly thought a lot about this retreat as, as, uh, you know, in the weeks ahead of it, uh, and that plan has changed a lot over the course of, you know, these days. Uh, just tuning into what I am, you know, observing and feeling and hearing, uh, and so adapting and and um, feeling into what you know what what seems to be the most appropriate thing now to bring up to bring forward now to to share to to address. So intention is impermanent. You know, sometimes we make an intention and we, we, uh, you know, when the retreat ends, I'm going to meditate, you know, an hour in the morning or an hour at night. Now, sometimes people who go to uh, Vipassana retreats in the Goenka tradition, you know, they have that tradition, that, that commitment, an hour in the morning, an hour at night. Um, and that's great, you know, it's, that's not, not to, not at all to, to, to denigrate that. It's a, it's a, it's a great intention, but then, but then maybe it doesn't quite fit into your life or, or, or maybe you find that practice is taking other forms, you know, maybe the practice of kindness, the practice of generosity becomes you know, a, a, a real um, focus for transformation in your life. Um, the practice of uh, compassion. You know, these, there's so many dimensions to practice. And so, you know, when we have this fixed intention that it has to be something or we've failed. All of these, you know, intentions, you know, we identify with intentions. That's the point of of having it, you know, be named in the five aggregates. We think our intentions or our plans are who we are. And, um, and, and it, it, it's not. The, the, the conditions that we imagine will support this intention are not always there. Or the intention doesn't fit the conditions um, that, you know, as we... We find them unfolding, or the intention just kind of peters out because it wasn't really feeding us, or we didn't bring enough energy to it. Um, so, so identifying intention as me or mine is also. Uh, um, a cause of of unsatisfactoriness and suffering, uh, so clinging to intention as me or mine. And the fifth kanda is consciousness, 
And we really think consciousness is uh, who we are. You know, that's, I mean, that, that is a, um, uh, a strong belief for most of us. Um, I mean, I think that I'm seeing the, uh, the color of the ceiling and the movement of the fan and so on, um, that I'm hearing, that I am hearing, you know. And, and the way that the Buddha deconstructs this is, uh, is looking at, you know, how sense, the experience of sense consciousness arises that, you know, so, and he says, there's a sense object. So, um, let's say the sound of the lawnmower. It's the theme for the day. Sense object, a sense organ, and sense consciousness, which is a part of the brain, a uh, place in the brain uh, that we know. Um, and for, for the experience of hearing to happen, there has to be all three elements. So if there's no sound of the mower, um, the sense organ doesn't hear it, and sense consciousness doesn't. So if there's no sound at all, say, right on cue, comes back, uh, um, and the, uh, but if the ear is not working, if, if the uh, inner ear is not functioning, uh, then the vibrations that carry the sound will reach the ear, but won't register and no sound will be known. And if, um, you know, the, we're not conscious, if we're out cold, asleep or knocked out or whatever, uh, we won't hear the sound either, right? So all three have to be there. And consciousness is also impermanent. Consciousness is arising moment by moment by moment. So that moment of silence that we heard or almost silence, you know, like we can perhaps recall that it's gone. The um, so sil- so consciousness is eye consciousness, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. You know the, the the consciousness of a thought arising, and then it passes away. So because we have such a continuity of consciousness. Uh, that there are so many sensory experiences that are coming so quickly one after another, it, it appears to us as, as though a consciousness is a constant, but actually consciousness is, is something that's arising and um, passing away very, very quickly. So what is left if, you know, if we, if we don't cling to the khandas, if there's no clinging, then 
then what is left? What is this awakening? What is this awakened being? And, and this is to be discovered. It's, it's something that is not of the five senses or the sixth sense consciousness. And yet, in awakening, uh, these are not lost. And so, you know, there is a falling away, a momentary falling away of clinging, of, of identifying with the six senses. Uh, the five khandas. And um, and then life goes on. But living as awakening beings, we can hold these more lightly. So our practice can be to see how we are clinging, to see how we are constructing a sense of me and mine. It's not to say that we never, we never strategically utilize a sense of self, because we do have a sense of self as we approach practice that we want to do something, we bring an intention to practice, we bring an intention to be more kind. And so Tanisara Bhikkhu, who is another Thai forest monk, talks about that as a strategic self, that we use a strategy of self, not to believe in the self as a final um, kind of object, as a real object or thing or reality, but, but strategically we can develop this being that we are, uh, this life, and, and move more and more toward being free, being loving, being compassionate, being seeing through the uh, duality, the false duality of, of me and mine versus other. So um, let's, let's stop there. It's a lot. And, uh, and, th- and I thank you for listening. Uh, and, um, and so let's just take a few minutes to sit with it, to, to uh, feel into the body. Uh, and... Um, and then we'll be moving into the unscheduled time of practice, the, the self-practice afternoon.